Hi there. I'm Michael Marvash, and this is The Dead Man's Forest, a weekly conversation about life, death, what it feels like to be alive, and the different lessons that we have all learned while alive that other people might be able to benefit from. Today I have a conversation for you with a very special guest, so let's dive right into that. I am talking to Emily Marvash, who, based on the name similarity, you may have realized that she and I have a unique relationship. She is my big sister. Thanks for joining me, Emily, for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Us, yeah. And uh, by way of introduction, I wanted to tell my listeners a little bit about my my impressions of you, of course, filtered through the fact that I am your little brother. Um, okay. So in, in our previous technology uh, fail recording, I was <laughs> telling people that um, that I have always seen you as a, as a confident person who who seems to know what she wants and is very successful in going and getting those things. I, I think I, I called you high achieving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and those characteristics were always a little intimidating to me, especially when I was younger. Um, but I have always seen you as intelligent and articulate. And I have really valued the thoughts that you have shared with me over the years. So I guess first, thanks for being my sister. Well, <laughs> neither of us had much choice about that. That's um, true. But I would, it, I, it is funny to hear you describe me as high achieving because um, I am, uh, I am by definition a starving artist, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not a doctor, and um, my retirement savings are pretty woefully inadequate, as are those of many millennials. And, uh, and, you know, if success is measured and some people measure it this way, um, by achieving the goals that you set for yourself, then, um, then, then I'm still struggling with, Mm. with my own definition of success and high achievement. Um, but, uh, but I am doing what I love on a daily basis and that, um, that's a pretty good placeholder for me right now. Um, do you want me to explain exactly what I do? Yeah, I realized I left that out. So sure, sure. Um, so I have two degrees in classical music, and I'm a full-time performing musician, um, which which primarily means gig work, and um, I sort of live and and work in the concert segment of the classical music industry. So although I sing opera occasionally, most of the time I um, am performing on stage with an orchestra or with another ensemble um, or or just creating my own projects, which are very interesting to me. But all of those require that I um, uh, use my talents and my skills as a singer. Thanks for sharing that. Is there, is there anything else you want to say about yourself or in general before we get started with the, the Dead Man's Forest conversation? Sure. I live in Boston and, um, and I'm 37 years old. 
I uh, rent an apartment and do not have a car. Um, and and as I said, I, I am a professional classical singer and really enjoy my career and all of the variety that it offers me. You mentioned millennials. Do you consider yourself to be one? Technically, I am a millennial. Okay. So is it anyone born in the 80s then? I think it's 1979 or 1980, somewhere around there. I'm on the very leading edge of the millennials. Yeah. Um, and and I, I share some of the characteristics of the millennials and especially their experience in entering the workforce after the Great Recession. Um, mm. But I do not consider myself a digital native and... Um, and don't uh, don't feel a lot of the anxiety that I think characterizes some of the younger millennials. Yeah. Yeah. I have I, plenty of anxiety, but it's not <laughs> not related to my Facebook page. Yeah. You're about a year and a half older than me, and I think I consider myself to be a, an older millennial. So it was so it's interesting to me that you you consider yourself the same. Yeah, well, what's the other option? Generation Z? I don't even know what that means. I guess that's not, yeah, that's true. There's not. I'm not a Gen Xer. You just don't fit anywhere. (laughs) Isn't that what the Gen Xers said about themselves? Yeah, we we do have characteristics of both, I think. Um, And you can't, you can't so neatly fit anyone in any box. Exactly. We're all our own people. So the story of the Dead Man's Forest is it comes from a dream that I had while while I was on my vision fast in the desert. And it starts with us viewing uh, a a landscape, a, a broad, wide, deep landscape that is dead, that nothing grows in. And it's stark and has a beauty in its own way, but you can feel that the potential for life just went unrealized. And as we zoom in on that landscape, we see a figure sitting on a chair in the middle of it. And while it looks like the figure has been dropped there to a certain extent, we can also tell that they belong, that that they the landscape exists as a part of their existence and we realize as we continue to draw closer to the figure that the the fact that the landscape is dead means that that person whoever they are did not plant seeds did not tend them did not cultivate and water did not uh cause the landscape to bloom with life and as we draw closer to the figure, we see that they're dead, that they're a skeleton, that, that any hope of that is now past. And yet, as we continue to get closer and, and more and more details about the figure resolve themselves, we see very bizarrely that this skeleton, that this dead, dead man sitting in this dead landscape has growing out of their head and heart or where their head and heart would be this lush green and yet tiny forest living forest and what i took from that when i saw it was that um 
this person had in them, in their head and in their heart, knowledge and wisdom, living, vibrant, things that they knew that for some reason, either out of selfishness or fear or laziness, they never shared. They never shared, spread those seeds. They never cultivated them. They never talked about them. And so the, the, the land that they found themselves in remained dead even after their death. And the lesson that I took for myself out of that was that if I have such knowledge inside myself, if I have any lessons or anything worth sharing, then I would like to try to do that while I'm still here. And I realize that I think that's the case too for everyone, that we all have learned things through our unique experience that are worth talking about, that are worth sharing, that are worth putting out into the world just to see, just in the hopes that someone else uh, can learn something from us. Um, and so based on that, my question for you is, what are those lessons in your life? What have you learned um, so far that informs how you move through your life, how you make decisions and what is important to you? that you think someone else might benefit from? Well, it's it's interesting because one of the things that I consider about myself and and sort of one of these things that I always remind myself of is the, the state of continuing to learn myself mm. and of, um, and I have found it most helpful in my life and career and relationships to sort of listen first and speak later that that sort of um uh condition of receiving as opposed to condition of giving whether that's opinions or knowledge or wisdom or anything like that um so it's it's funny that it, and i and i you know, you always always hear people who are 95 and have, you know, achieved amazing things in their life saying that they're still learning themselves. So I think that no one is ever qualified to offer wisdom because we're all mm. continually students, right? Mm. Um, I can, you know, we can all talk about the things that um, that we have found beneficial to ruminate on over the years and, you know, the things that, that work for us. But um, I think that if I were to say that I had life lessons, definitively life lessons, mm. I mean, that's, that's a lot of hubris <laughs> for a person who's not even 40 yet, you know? Sure. That being said, I have a lot of opinions, but, uh, right. but I, I think that, that we all, need to be in this constant state. And I think that that's what you're getting at with this, that we can all be learning from each other um, mm -hmm. in more of a fluid, circular thing um, than just a person saying, this is what, this is my advice for people in my life. Sure. Yeah, it reminds me of, of something that I've talked about before and that we can't, we can't berate ourselves for not knowing more than we know. <laughs> At the right. present moment, right, uh, and yet we we I would hope are constantly trying to know more, right. And a part of that, a part, an important part of that process, the other side of that process is talking to other people who we at least perceive maybe have some ideas. Yeah. <laughs> for us, 
and hopefully we are generous enough to share them even though we may not be a hundred percent confident that they are quote the answer right uh, and we can take we can take from that what we find valuable and leave the rest and there's no uh, judgment in that certainly not of the other person um I think what well, you expressed right there is is um, is important to keep learning. <laughs> well, uh, point taken. I will be generous and share my <laughs> experiences and thoughts with you and your audience. Well, thank you. Um, you're welcome. Uh, so, so that's that's one of the things I, as a by nature introverted and um, circumspect person. Uh, that that has been sort of the my mo when when approaching new situations or anything is just to kind of like be quiet and just like get the lay of the land before you know entering with some mm -hmm. splash you know um and and that i feel has served me really well just to just to sit and listen and absorb and see how things are done and you know nobody when we were growing up you know nobody I didn't know anybody who worked in the classical music industry I didn't even know it was a job that I could do for the mm. longest time so a lot of it you know when I when I ended up in grad school and moved to Boston there were people who have been steeped in this world for decades and you know I just had to like just shut up and listen for a while and just kind of see how things were done. Um, and that, you know, that is a practice. And, and, you know, now I am one of those people I've lived in Boston for 15 years and I feel comfortable in this community and in this industry. Um, but there are still times where I can, I can listen first and talk later. Um, mm. And that's something that I, I have to remind myself of all the time. And, you know, you make more mistakes when you keep your mouth shut. You know, you make fewer mistakes when you okay. keep your mouth shut. <laughs> yes. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so that's, that's one of the things. And then in terms of, in terms of career, um, I always tell young students um, when they're sort of embarking on, on a classical music career that flexibility is the number one skill that you will use. It's not your vocal technique. It's not your um, your composition skills. It's not your ability to sight read music without having looked at it before. It is 100% your flexibility because that encompasses all of those other things. So, um, so m the my ability to make a career in this industry is a direct result of my ability and willingness to be flexible and, um, and just, you know, say yes to say yes to a bunch of things and see what fits and, um, and be open to non-traditional definitions of what a performing career might look like. Okay. So I always like to ask, specific yeah. example it sounds like you're about to give one um uh so so there is over the past 30 years this might be getting a little in the weeds um over the past 30 years there has been this um growth 
um, of a subset of the classical music industry that is um, vocal chamber ensembles. So ensembles, chamber ensembles of, you know, say 12 to 24 people um, who are all singers. And these groups could be thought of as choirs, but they aren't really because they function differently than a choir. Um, so, so when I was, uh, when I was getting my first degree in music, the focus was on learning basic skills. And then when I was getting my second degree in music, the focus was, um, on preparing to enter, um, this sort of well-established, dictated, very narrow, um, narrow path into the classical singing world. And, um, and in order, um, while I was doing that, I was making money as a quote unquote choir singer, a choral singer. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was a way that I could use the skills that I had learned in my degrees to make money immediately. Um, but what was happening at the same time is this explosion of these vocal chamber groups. So because I was not so blinkered that I thought I had to do this route, this narrow path to classical singing, um, I was able to um, work in these these groups and make a little money, but also sort of ride that wave of this um, – essentially being an early adopter of this new model of vocal art um, so that now it's, it's a way that I pay my rent and my bills. Um, And, and that required uh, an open-mindedness to even understand that that was a possibility, but also the type of music that these groups do, it, varies so widely all sorts of different techniques and languages and styles and um whether you're singing with 12 singers or eight singers or three singers and some instruments or any combination of those things um that requires a lot of mental um and vocal flexibility Mm. and the people the kind of people who are now working in this industry are highly in demand, um, because of that flexibility and, uh, and it enables them to get not only classical music concert on amplified gigs, but also working with the Rolling Stones and Kanye West and, um, and, and the, the other, the types of other artists in what seem like distant genres that are interested in new sounds and exciting music and they are seeking out like minds and the people who have been working in this choral chamber music, vocal chamber music world have leveled up there and now they are in demand by strange groups and they're just, their skill set makes them attractive to so, to such a wide spectrum of music and art and performance art that um, the, the, the possibilities are limitless. Yeah. You can hear, by the way, in the way that you talk about this, how 
passionate and interested you are in it. Well, it's fascinating. I mean, I just never knew that this was possible, that I could like sing a thousand different types of music with a ton of different types of people and never be bored. Mm -hmm. There are a thousand paths to a career in your passion or engagement in your passion. Um, and nobody, nobody really articulated that to me until I saw it for myself mm -hmm. in practice that, you know, if, if there's something that you want to do, um, that anyone wants to do, there's probably a way to engage with it, um, in a way that works for you. Mm -hmm. And that understanding that is very valuable. And, um, and I'm grateful that, that I have that, that flexibility, um, in my life and my career. Cool. That's all of the conversation I'll share with you this week. Emily's lessons about listening first and about being flexible are the most explicit lessons that she shared. She and I went on to talk for another 30 minutes or so, more specifically about music, her love of music, and there are some life lessons woven into that. But in the interests of time, I will save those for next week. As always, thanks for being here. If you have any thoughts about what you heard today, any questions or comments for me or for Emily, you know where to reach me. The contact form on deadmansforest.org. And if you want to have a chat sometime about what you've learned in your life, I would love to do that. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. I will talk to you next time. Bye-bye.